So, Will. Yes? It brings me great pain and shame to admit this, but (laughs) for years I have somehow ended up with this. It got so long that I ended up with a mental block and I have not seen Moonlight until I watched it for this podcast. What? If you had asked me if I'd seen Moonlight, I would have talked around it and implied I had without ever admitting it. But this is me coming clean, confessing my shame. I did just assume that you had seen this movie. Yeah, everyone has. It seems like a movie I should have seen. It sure does. I mean, we're going to talk about this. This is the last year of Best Picture that we have not discussed on this podcast. Right. And then it got to be such a thing and then I felt overwhelmed and I developed this weird like it was just it got so embarrassing that I hadn't seen it that I couldn't bring myself to watch it which doesn't make sense but no, that's how it, it just, goes it's cool when you haven't seen a great movie because then you get to watch it for the first time I did love watching it that's for sure like I took my parents and my wife to see Jaws when it was re-released in theaters over Labor Day and none of them had ever seen Jaws and it was amazing but I did want to ask you in this vein, what is a movie that you are embarrassed to have not seen and maybe have covered up whether you've seen it or not? I mean, embarrassed is a tricky word because for the most part, I don't really get embarrassed at this point in my life not to have seen something. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's so many movies and there are hundreds more coming out every year. And I feel like a person not that much older than we are lived in a moment where it kind of felt like if you worked hard enough, it was possible to really see all of the canon of film because it was a new enough medium that like it could be done. Probably not actually, but it felt possible. And I feel like you and I are right in the window of age where like we are the group of people that has to realize it cannot be done. Right. And I mean, it's also a good thing in that part of that is we are admitting things that should have been considered canon when they came out but were ignored because of perhaps who made them or who starred in them are worth watching. And as such, it has just grown to include even past movies. Right. So yeah, we have, we live in a period where more movies are being made than ever before. And the canon of older movies is expanding. So like, I am, I am comfortable with the things of which I am ignorant. However, you know, there are things like, like I have not seen Rocky. I have not seen a minute of any Rocky movie. No, that's not true. I've seen Creed and Creed 2. I have also not seen Rocky. Creed 2 is the first Rocky movie that I saw. That it's always the funniest way of doing this is seeing a sequel before the original in such a classic series. Yeah. I had a good time. Then I watched Creed and I was like substantially better. Oh wait, I think I've seen Rocky. You know, I I was reminded that I haven't seen Rocky because I went into the crate of unwatched movies that sits next to my desk, and I saw that I have a in the shrink wrap Blu-ray of Rocky that I got for three dollars somewhere, and it's been sitting in there <laughs> unwatched since then. So I've got that. Um, some other movies that I haven't seen that are in here. Uh, Mark, I want you to confirm that I'm actually uh, holding these things up in front of the camera to confirm these are real movies that I own. Oh my god. Okay. Yes, you own Rocky. Will you? Confirm magician style. So I have not seen Rocky. That's in the shrink wrap. Um, I've not seen Predator. I feel like I would like Predator. I've definitely pretended to have seen Predator. Okay. I've seen Prey. I saw that, the new one. He is holding Predator. I've never seen Taxi Driver. A lot of those Scorsese ones. You know, I've basically mostly seen weird Scorsese's. Like, I've seen Goodfellas. But my first Martin Scorsese movie was Silence. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, there, there's the other stuff here, too. Like, I've never seen The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants 2. Okay, um, Will, I think it's really brave of you to admit that on the podcast. I paid a buck fifty for this Nanny Diaries DVD and I've never watched it. And you haven't put that on the schedule yet? That's, I was going through this and I was like, you know what, there's stuff that I bought like four years ago for us to do on the podcast and then forgot about and I've got to start putting it on here. Like, I paid two whole dollars for Zookeeper starring Kevin James. Will, you're really letting us down on this show. Also featuring the voices, that means they voice animals, of Nick Nolte, Adam Sandler, Sylvester Stallone, and Cher. Okay, well, I'm intrigued. Alright, so Zookeeper in 2023 for us. This movie has five credited screenwriters. Oh my god. 
So uh, I feel like I've really bared my soul here. I've admitted to a lot. Uh, so Mark, besides wildly acclaimed Best Picture winner Moonlight, uh, what else have you not seen? Uh, Brokeback Mountain also on my list. I okay, do. We have... just got to do that on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I do have the added element of being gay, increasing the shame for some of these movies. I think. Yeah. Mostly off the top of my head, Moonlight, Brokeback Mountain are the big ones. Just because, you know, they're part of a queer canon that I have just not watched yet. I sure. will someday. <laughs> but, you know, those are probably the big two. I'm trying to think of some other ones. I'm, like, looking at Best Picture winners, which I think is not a good list because some of these are just bad movies. <laughs> I feel like you really should be looking at the nominees to get a better sense. Sure. I've never seen Gladiator. I feel like I would love Gladiator. I watched Gladiator, and I had terrible food poisoning, so I don't remember much of the film Gladiator as a result. (laughs) I believe it. That's a movie you don't want to have food poisoning during. So my advice, avoid food poisoning as much as possible. I watched Bad Teacher when I had food poisoning. And that made a bad movie absolutely excruciating. You know, it was a great thing to watch with food poisoning, which I may have mentioned on this podcast before. The first season of Riverdale in its entirety. You have talked about this. Still stand by that decision. First season of Riverdale, as Chip Zdarsky once said, those kids are banging. Uh, indeed, they do be doing that. Uh, yeah, those are my big shames. There's a lot of, like, Tom Hanks movies I haven't seen. Castaway. Castaway's great. Catch uh, me you know, as can. somebody who just watched Robert Zemeckis' newest movie about Tom Hanks getting stranded in the middle of a sea, but this time, instead of looking for a coconut, he's looking for a wooden boy, I gotta say, I have even more appreciation for Castaway today. I take it that movie was not worth watching. I uh, know, Pinocchio 2022, I'll say this, it's not worth your time, but... Disney Plus lists it as an hour and 50 minutes, but it's got Disney Plus credits, so it's really an hour 35. Jesus Christ. And I felt like Pinocchio being saved from Monstro's belly when I realized that the credits were going to roll 15 minutes sooner than I had feared. Wow. Okay. Speaking of a bad movie, should we start talking about a really good movie? (laughs) Sure. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at the love story of a movie Mark saw for the first time, 2016 Best Picture winner, Moonlight. (sighs) This movie is very good. Thank God it won Best Picture over La La Land. All right, so so let's just start with this. Let's start with the Oscar campaign and with maybe the number one Oscar ceremony moment. Like, it might be it. I think it might be... I mean, how do you top getting it wrong? Yeah, like, the contenders are the streaker in the 70s that David Niven had to respond to. And then, like iconic speeches like you like me you really like me i'm king of the world honestly for me anthony hopkins winning for the father is up there as one of the most bizarre moments because clearly no one had any idea what to do yeah um i think it might be the number one because it's it's so massive of an error yeah like the closest thing is probably sashin littlefeather going up in place of marlon brando And even that, like, that is a big moment, and it has resonance outside of the Oscars, which I think makes it more of a cultural moment. Because this, there's no real broader cultural statement. It's just an absolutely wild moment that, because of the cultural context surrounding La La Land and Moonlight, it elevated it. But at its core, (laughs) someone read the card wrong. (laughs) No, that's not what happened. Someone read the wrong card. Yeah. It's worth going back and re-watching this, which, which I did after finishing the movie. It's incredible to note every beat of the sequence where Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway go out to read the winner of Best Picture. He opens the envelope. He looks at it like four times, like visibly looks down, looks up like four times. He tries to show it to Faye Dunaway 
to be like, do you see something weird here? Faye Dunaway doesn't look at it, brushes him off, like, come on, like, stop being a goof and just read it. And he, like, shrugs and says, La La Land. It's a lot. And because what happened is, as we learned, there are two copies of every envelope. And he had been given the other copy of the Best Actress envelope. So it didn't say La La Land and the producers. It said Emma Stone La La Land. So the whole La La Land crew goes up. Two of the producers get through their speeches. You're allowed to have three producers win the award. So they get two of them fully through. And while that's going on, you start to see people in headsets running around in the background on stage. Boy, is there scurrying. And then the third guy is giving his speech as people are like grabbing Warren Beatty, looking at the envelope. Jimmy Kimmel has come on stage to see what's going on. Yeah, he's that. I think honestly, one of my favorite parts is him just standing there. And then the third guy wraps up his speech and is like, by the way, we didn't win. Oh my God, a a twist. By the way, we lost. The guy holds up the envelope. He goes, Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Everyone's staring. And he goes, no, this is not a joke. Moonlight won Best Picture. Come on up here. That dude is like the hero of the night for, I think, handling it extremely well. And I mean, he even said, I'm so excited to be handing this to my friends who made Moonlight. Yeah, Which, I mean, like, that's the thing. Probably not true, but... No, it is. Like, that happens with people on the award circuit because they're going to all the same events for six months. I mean, I believe that they are friends, but, like, no one's happy about handing over an Oscar. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> no one's thrilled to be, give, like, to be in this situation, but he handles it so gracefully. Yeah. I mean, like, the other dude is Ben Platt's dad, so, like, I don't feel as bad for him. <laughs> I do love that he, like, finished his speech first, too. Yeah. He heard. He said, this is my moment. I'm thanking everyone, and then I will admit it. And, like, it's the weird thing of, like, it's just a screw-up with envelopes. But it so enhanced the feeling that this was, like, an impossible underdog win. Right. Because it's not, like, I'm trying to think of an example of... It's not a come from a behind victory in a horse race. No. Like, it was Moonlight. It was Moonlight the whole night. Right. But it's also, I mean, the same thing in terms of cultural context. It's not like, you know, if When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle were the two nominated ones and the wrong one was announced. It would be a big deal, but it would. I don't think it would have been even as big a deal as this. Because it was like, the discussion the whole time leading up to it was... Moonlight or La La Land, and there was, you know, conversation about La La Land because of the appropriation and, like, the fact that it's a movie about jazz with white people in it. Okay, I think the discourse around La La Land is wildly unfair to that movie because I think the negative discourse around La La Land assumed that Ryan Gosling was the hero of that movie, and he is not. The movie treats him as an asshole the entire time, and especially when he's talking about jazz. He is annoying. He is mansplaining. He is stuck in his backward ways. Like, John Legend is clearly presented as the future in that movie. He's the one who has, like, an audience and is having fun. And Ryan Gosling has neither of those things. He has a restaurant called Chicken on a Stick. That is a good point. I think it's just hard when it's Ryan Gosling. Because everyone will just assume he is the hero. Yeah, but that's where, like... I like La La Land fine. I think Moonlight is a great film. Moonlight is a much more original film. Absolutely. But, like, there's a lot I enjoy about La La Land. I think the opening number especially is genuinely incredible filmmaking. I think it is better for that movie's legacy that it did not win Best Picture. You do not want to come out the gate that hard, though, because it never lives up to that moment. Right. I mean, I also think, frankly, La La Land had the misfortune of being nominated for Best Picture in the Oscar season in which Donald Trump was elected president. Because never explicitly, but kind of in the way people talked, La La Land became the Donald Trump of that election season, where it was, is America going to embrace this movie about queer black people, or is it going to embrace a movie about a white guy? And, like, uh, very focused on the history of the past Rather than looking to the future. I think La La Land is often done dirty in this discourse in ways that are unfair to that movie. But it is also for the best that Moonlight, a far superior film, won Best Picture. Right. 
I think it is funny that it took away from La La Land being tied for the most winningest movie by it like for a brief moment was tied for the most winning movie at the Oscars and then now isn't. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing where like Moonlight had won adapted screenplay and supporting actor from Herschel Ali. But all night, it really did feel like it was La La Land's night. Damien Chazelle had become the youngest person to win Best Director. I remember watching it and, like, when they finally called it for La La Land, being like, all right, fine. And, like, slamming my laptop shut, getting ready to go to bed. And I was, like, picking up all my stuff in the living room of this, like, group house I was living in. When suddenly, like, Jimmy Kimmel is like, Warren, what did you do? My God. So much drama. I rewatched part of it, too. And... I had forgotten how much had happened. It's very... It's incredible television. It's incredible television. It really is. I cannot recommend strongly enough that people go back and rewatch, like, the full 10-minute video on YouTube. It is just unbelievable to see. But, like, independent of... It's hard to divorce Moonlight from all of that. But, away from all of that, it's such a good movie. Yeah. And I do think, like... The fact that it is such a small, intimate movie, as opposed to La La Land, a movie that is, like, steeped in the history of Hollywood musicals, does contribute to the, like, miracle quality of it winning. Or, like, Mm -hmm. it still feels kind of surreal that Moonlight won Best Picture. Like, the other, like, miracle win of the last couple of years is Parasite, but that's, like, a totally different kind of movie. Yeah. It really is, like... This is so small and so intimate. It's made with like one and a half million dollars. Yeah, uh, we should note the first ever fully financed by A24 movie. Hmm. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, I remember this was the first time I like noticed the A24 logo at the start of a movie. But I didn't know until I was doing research for this that it's the first time they put all the financing together for a movie. Well, I mean, it's not that much financing. (laughs) Sure, but nonetheless. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Like, it is interesting, but it is also (laughs) a billion and a half dollars. Obviously more with advertising and all that. Yeah. Um, Of course, the advertising goes both ways, right? Because, like, the day after the the Best Picture win, all of the adult stars were in Calvin Klein ads. I mean, there's some hot people in this movie. There are some hot people in this movie. I mean, Trevante Rhodes and Andre Holland. Janelle Monet, Mahershala okay. Ali. Let's pivot again. Let's talk Janelle Monet in this movie <laughs> and in Hollywood in general. Real quick, I did I was curious. Parasite's budget was 15.5 million. So still it's a totally big, different thing. But it is still like one and a half million is so few dollars. Yeah. So Janelle Monet, who is great in this movie, this is her first screen appearance in a film. She's so good. Big year for Janelle Monet. Yes, because it's the same year as Hidden Figures for which she should have been nominated for an Oscar. I think she was the best of the three. She is. And they nominate Octavia Spencer because that's what they do. She's good. She's reliable. <laughs> I'm never mad at an Octavia Spencer performance. Sometimes I'm mod at an Octavia Spencer performance. But Gross. Janelle Monet is so clearly the standout of that movie to me. I still cannot believe Octavia Spencer was Oscar-dominated for Shape of Water, to be honest. That's that's the crazy it's one. It's a good performance. That's the one that, like, almost waters down the others. It kind of does, because that's the one where you're like, oh, so we're just, just doing this every time. just a friend. It's like, is this, yeah. this going to be a Meryl Streep thing, where it's just every time out? And then it, they prove they're like, no, we're not doing it every time out. We refuse to nominate her for Ma. <laughs> oh my god oh imagine if she was nominated for ma the world would have crashed and burned i that movie was a good time i should watch ma again when those ma memes were going around everywhere i loved it they're always funny so moonlight yes best picture winner it feels so trite for us to like let's talk about what's going on with moonlight because like it's it's moonlight right right I, like, had a hard time convincing myself to do a lot of research for this episode because I was just like, it's Moonlight. Like, we know it's Moonlight. It was, like, a little movie, and it made it all the way in that, like, miracle moment at the Oscars. But, so it's Barry Jenkins. It's his second movie after Medicine for Melancholy. It's a full eight years after Medicine for Melancholy. This thing took a long time in development. Where Jenkins had a hard time getting a project together. And then he got to know Terrell Alvin McCraney, who's a playwright. A good playwright writing about 
like the late 20th, early 21st century black people, especially in poverty and queer black people. I had to read some of his plays in college. And McCraney had written this semi-autobiographical play called In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. And somebody passed that script to Jenkins. And he and McCraney had some similar backgrounds. They had both grown up in Miami. They both had mothers who were addicted to drugs. And so they started working on turning it into a movie. Ultimately, Barry Jenkins has sole screenplay credit, but McCraney has a story credit. And they spend a couple of years working on that screenplay before finally it's 2013 that they're shopping it around. That's when Plan B comes on board as a producer. And Plan B, of course, is Brad Pitt's production company, because we should not forget that Brad Pitt is behind a lot of Best Picture nominees in the past decade. Yeah, I forgot until the credits that Brad Pitt was a producer on this. Yeah. And, of course, Brad Pitt, at this point, had an Oscar for producing 12 Years a Slave. And also he, produced a Minari. Like, him. it's not just that Brad Pitt produces a bunch of movies. I, I really respect the extent to which Brad Pitt uses his influence and money and production company to make movies that Brad Pitt could not be in. And then, after 12 Years a Slave, is not in them. Right, yes. He is in 12 Years a Slave. A thing I always forget. But I do, now that you say it, I do remember that shot of him, like, on a ladder making a roof. <laughs> I have not seen that movie yet. Well, no need to be embarrassed. There's a lot of movies. Yes. That one felt less important than Moonlight. Yeah, and I would say it is less important than Moonlight. Still a very good movie, and we've done To Tell Edgy of Four Dirty since then. Yeah. I do want to shout out Nicholas Brattel's music in this movie. Oh, my God. Composer of the HBO original series Succession's opening theme. A bop, a jam, a perfect song. Every time a Nicholas Bertel score comes out, I feel like we should all... Like, a Nicholas Bertel score is like a Beyonce album for me. (laughs) Where it's like, we should all just stop and only talk about this for a while until we've sorted it out. The music in this is so good. Yeah, this music is great. He also scores Jenkins' next movie, which is If Beale Street Could Talk. And I think the Beale Street score is, like, one of the best things to come out of the film industry in the 2010s. Like, I think that Beale Street score is unbelievable. I also once heard it in a car commercial, which was weird. (laughs) That is weird, but it also shows that you are not the only one that thinks it's that good. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing where this is a movie that's so small. It's a million and a half. They shoot over 25 days. But, like, every piece of it feels so fully realized. You've got the score. You've got the cinematography, which is like magic it's this like sweeping camera moving through things and like when it's watching the kids playing there's this like like a really loving quality to it but then there are those close-ups which can be so alienating or so intense the shot at the beach is the shot at the beach i think the scene that got talked about the most during award season especially for mahershala ali is the like learning to swim scene which is just literally breathtaking. Like, I felt like I was holding my breath just watching the waves sweeping over the lens and Mahershala and Little there in the water. It's amazing stuff. God, it's so good. Yeah. And (laughs) that's every... What is there to say about Moonlight? It's What is there to say? Every performance is so spot on. Every performance. I mean, the pacing is perfect. The, like cuts are timed so well you never feel like you need more of the story than you get but you never get more of the story than you need you always feel like you could want more but you don't actually need it right like you would love to spend more time with this movie because it's such a good movie but it covers everything you need to know yeah i'm so this is one thing i'm so on the fence about whether they should have kissed at the end because I would have loved to have seen a kiss, but the head on the shoulder is almost more tender. Yeah, I think I think it's the right call because it's more tender, but it's also not a resolution in the way that a kiss would be. Right. It's not you know a big the the end moment. Yeah. But again, I do like kissing. <laughs> I mean, kissing great. <laughs> You know, talking about, like, where the movie leaves us at different points in the story, because it's told in this three-act structure. I think it's interesting. The play doesn't have that three-act structure. 
it's presented as one day and you're seeing these different characters of Little and Chiron and Black going through their day interacting with people. And it's not until like halfway through the play that it's clear that these are three different days at different points in time and that these characters are the same person. Gotta say, that's a framing device that I always enjoy. Yeah, but I, I think that's fun. That's some theater nonsense. It is. It does not need to happen in a movie. It works in books, too. Yes. But I think in a movie, you don't need it. No, I agree. And instead, what this movie gets is it gets the jump. It gets, because they can move to a different location and they can have a different cast more easily, they can give you the jolt of, and now you're somewhere and some other time. Mm-hmm. And it, it jolts a lot, too. The craziest thing about it is that the three Chirones never met during production. Really? Yeah. Like, by deliberate choice by Barry Jenkins. Because he didn't want them huh. to copy each other. Huh. Which is so strange because they so fully seem to be the same person. Yeah. Like, it does feel like they ha- they carry themselves in similar ways. Which I guess is a testament to Barry Jenkins' direction. That he's able to direct the performances so that there's a consistency without it being imitation. Yeah. That's such an... I, I don't think I would have come up with that or done that idea. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's bizarre. I, I, I keep saying it. It's like, I don't really know always what to say about Moonlight because it is just like, it is simply a great movie. And I was really thrilled watching this last night because I saw it in theaters like the Sunday before Thanksgiving in 2016. And I was really tired for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe I had just like flown back for Thanksgiving. And that time I felt like I really respected the movie, but that was kind of it. And Watching it last night, even just on my couch, I was so taken with it. The cinematography, the score, the quietness of the performances. It's all about these sort of small motions and looks and touches. It's so rare that it gets bigger than anything of that. And it feels jarring when it gets bigger than any of that. And then there are moments where, I don't know if you felt this way, you almost want to just like yell at the characters. <laughs> You're like, just talk, just kiss. You're like, ah! You're but for so the most part, they're frustrated. teenagers. They're going to be like that. I know. And it makes sense. And it makes more sense that they behave the way they do. But it's still like, you just want more because you want him to be happy. Yeah. It's just like, what a miracle this thing is. It's, it's such a good movie. <laughs> I'm so yeah, glad I I've mean, seen it. Moonlight wins Best Picture. It wins Best Supporting Actor for Mahershala Ali. It wins Best Adapted Screenplay for Jenkins and McCraney. Barry Jenkins is nominated for Best Director. Naomi Harris is nominated for Best Supporting Actress and loses to Viola Davis, who is playing a lead character. They also get nominations for Editing, Cinematography, and Score, which makes Joa McMillan the first black woman nominated for an editing Oscar. I mean, the editing in this movie is one of the things that sets it apart, too, so... It's central to the whole deal. Um, They lose that one to... Hacksaw Ridge, the Best Picture nominee I refused to see that year. Why did you refuse to see it? It's directed by Mel Gibson. Oh, that explains that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I did. Oh, I didn't see Lion either. That was through lack of interest. <laughs> Maybe I should watch Lion. I don't know if I'll ever get to it. Maybe someday. I mean, this is, just, this is a strong year. Moonlight wins over Arrival, Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, La La Land, Lion, Manchester by the Sea. It's a pretty good year. It's a pretty good year. Yeah. So, should we talk about the romance? Yeah, I guess so. Which is kind of the whole deal and not the deal in Moonlight. Yeah, I thought it would be more central than it is. But, I mean, the only thing that's central in this movie is this character. Like, the romance, such as it is, is one of the biggest plot elements, but it's not a movie that's about plot. No, it's just a movie about the guy this guy moving through this world they did shoot it in liberty square which is the area of miami that barry jenkins and terrell alvin mccraney grew up in and because it's a million and a half dollar movie they shot it in 25 days wow dang (laughs) that's very cool honestly that they shot it there yeah i also think it's just worth keeping in mind you know this is the same oscar season as hidden figures moonlight comes out the same fall that atlanta premieres on fx Spring 2016 is when Chadwick Boseman first plays Black Panther. Like, there is this sense in 2016 of, like, a real moment beginning in 
representation of black people in mainstream cinema. And this winning best picture is a part of all of that. And especially that it wins mm-hmm. best picture as get out is breaking box office records that weekend. Yeah. What a year 2016 was. <laughs> sure was. <laughs> okay. So romance. Let's do some romance of moonlight. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points. So we can talk about what's going on. Now, Mark, this is a three-act movie, and we've asked you to break it down into five points. So I am uh, curious to see where we go to talk about the romance of Moonlight. Well, three of the points are in one of the acts. That makes sense. But we begin in act one, little, on the playground. So the main character of this movie, Chiron, is called Little, even though he doesn't like it, and is bullied, beaten up, chased by the other boys frequently, and one day is playing soccer football game um, with an improvised ball on the playground and starts walking away when he's approached by Kevin, another one of the boys his age. Why are you always letting people pick on you, man? What you mean? You always letting them pick on you. So? What I gotta do? All you gotta do? Show these niggas you ain't soft. But I ain't soft. I know, I know. But it don't mean nothing if they don't know. Come on. You want these fools to pick on you every day? Yeah, just a cute little kid. Just a cute little kid who is nice and is, like, trying to give him advice on how to stop being beaten up, essentially. Yeah, and his advice basically is, like, the other guys think you're soft. Prove to them you're not soft. Right. Well, so they fight as like a play fight to practice almost. But it doesn't seem to have worked when we cut to point two. Yeah. It is worth noting in that conversation, it is about softness. But it is clear in conversations among adults that a main source of kids bullying him is child homophobia. Oh, yes. That is good to yeah. bring up. And that this is an age where Little probably doesn't have any sense of like why really why this is happening right i mean the scene where he asks juan what a faggot is is very heartbreaking yeah a faggot is a word used to make gay people feel bad Am I a faggot? No. No. You could be gay, but you never let nobody call you no faggot. I mean, unless... How do I know? Just do. Marshall is amazing in this movie. He's so good. He deserved that Oscar. Shout out to the movie for keeping, although we don't see her, it sounds like Teresa just keeps being a good person until the end of the movie, and he's still in contact with her. Yeah, you you do see her in part two. But not in part three, but she's still mentioned. Yes, it's confirmed that he is still in touch with Teresa. That did make me happy. But after their interaction on the playground, we next encounter Kevin and Chiron in part two, in point two, when they're in the hallways of the school, and Kevin comes up and talks to him, and it seems that he might be one of the only people willing to talk to Chiron, but they are just friends. Yeah. They have an uncomfortable conversation in which (laughs) Kevin says that a teacher caught him having sex with another student in the hallway, a girl student. What you doing here? Detention, man. Names call me with this trick in the stairway. Damn. Yeah. Who? Damn, you nosy, nigga. <laughs> nah, I'm playing, yo. Look, I just wanted some quick hair, you know? But this chick all like, like, hit that shit, Kevin. Hit it with that big dick. Like, why she gotta compliment a nigga for? So I'm like, 
Like, shit, we can do this, you know? So I started banging her back out, dog. I'm talking about banging her back out. She want to make all this fucking noise, though. So Ames coming acting like 5-0 and shit. Almost had my ass suspended, dog. I talked it out, though. You know, I told him he was like childhood sweethearts and all of that. So I just got detention. It's cool. Good. Let's stay between us, all right? Yeah. I know you can keep a secret, dog. Real talk, though. I gotta go, all right, before the school changes mind. All right, kid. See you, Black. I want to step in as a teacher and say please do not have sex at school. There's just a time and place, and school is not it. Ain't it. There are so many other places where you can have sex, and just don't, please don't do it at school. And I mean this very broadly. If you're asking the question, does it count as sex, don't do it at school. There's just better, better ways and places and times. You'll have a better time somewhere else. Yeah. So they have this conversation. Chiron acts really awkward. You can already tell that he has complicated emotions towards Kevin. And this brings us to point three, which is where they go to the beach together. Right. Chiron finds himself out at night a lot because his mom, who's played by Naomi Harris, is a crack addict and will frequently tell him to leave when she has people from that world coming over. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is why sometimes he'll spend nights at Janelle Monet's house. Sometimes he'll, it seems, be wandering around. He might go see Kevin. He might go to the beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very depressing to watch, especially because when he sees Teresa, Janelle Monet, his mom then steals the money <laughs> that Teresa right. gives to him because his mom doesn't give him any and he needs to eat. Naomi Harris had previously stated that like she was never going to play a crack addict in a movie. And had to be convinced to do it in this one, in large part by Jenkins talking about the extent to which he and McCraney had put their own moms into the character. Mm-hmm. They, like, it's kind of interesting because they had to humanize Paula to Naomi, who then humanized Paula to us. Yeah, in her I think that's a good way of putting it. Because it's a very good performance. And she gets an Oscar nomination for it. It's a character who is very frustrating. Like, you feel... Chiron's frustration, you feel Mahershala Ali's frustration, but she's not a character that you, like, hate or any means. You are, you're more upset by her. Because you want her to do better. But on one of these nights, he's out wandering, and he and Kevin go to the beach where they have, honestly, a pretty just normal conversation until Kevin leans in close and gives Chiron a handjob. That breeze feel good as hell, man. Yeah, it do. And sometimes around the way where we live, you can catch that same breeze. Just come through the hood and it's like everything stopped for a second. Because everyone just want to feel it. Everything just gets quiet, you know? And it's like all you can hear is your own heartbeat. Right? Yeah. Feels so good, man. So good. Hell, should make you want to cry. Feels so good. Well, first they kiss. Well, first they have they a very kiss. lippy kiss. They have a very lippy kiss. Gives Chiron a hand job, and then just drives him home. And like that's that. Not a lot. Yeah. Of the weirdest part is when after. he's like dropping him off at home, and Kevin is just kind of like, "All right, see you around, dude." Yeah. Kevin clearly not processing. No. Anything. Maybe ever. Yeah, it's hard to know. And this brings us to point four, the next day at school. The fact that it's the next day. And there's, I think his name is Terrell, is like yeah. the leader of the bullies at school and convinces Kevin that to, you know, join his group and hang out with him, he has to be willing to fight whoever Terrell says to fight. Playing Knockdown. I can't remember the exact... Knockdown, Stay Down. Knockdown, Stay Down. And obviously, Terrell has been bullying Chiron the whole year because of homophobia. (laughs) And so he chooses Chiron for Kevin to, like, beat up, essentially. 
Hit that nigga. Hit that nigga, Kev. Yeah, hit his faggot ass. What the fuck you waiting on? Do it. Come on. Let's go. Yeah. Like that, Sharon. Yeah, I think you want another one. Another one. Do it. Get him. Yeah. Don't you get up, bro? Stay down. Yeah, if you get up, knock his faggot ass back down. Sharon, stay down. He got up. Oh, man. Do it again. Do it. Do it. Move. Kevin goes through with it. He punches. Chiron says, stay down. Basically, I don't want to have to keep doing this, but Chiron keeps standing up. He's the standing man. Yes. <laughs> Do you get Bridge of Spies jokes, Mark? Sh- uh, not really. I was not going to ask. I've seen it. Do I get the jokes? No. Great movie. Um, the previous best supporting actor win before Mahershala Ali. <laughs> oh, my God. Mark Rylance for Standing Man. So, we never get to talk about Oscar stuff that I know really well because we just do our Oscar episode every year. So this is the one where I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's talk Oscar. This is the Oscar episode. So eventually a teacher comes and separates them, but Chiron refuses to, you know, name names to the counselor and or cop. I wasn't exactly sure. Yeah, because it's the dude who kissed him last night. And yes, it's obviously that is the reason why. But that is resolved the next day when Chiron comes into school and beats Terrell up with a wooden chair. Yeah. And as such is arrested. I would prefer that none of this happen. And none of this knockdown, stay down, chair stuff. I don't want any of that in my classroom. So that's my general request to the listenership. As a teacher, Will is saying um, physical violence at school is bad. A very bold stance for him to take. Physical violence at school, bad. Sex at school, also bad. Like, I'm laying down the rules of my classroom here in this episode. They're very difficult to follow, we can tell. I don't ask a lot. And then uh, Chiron is sent to prison. Mm -hmm. And then we next see him in part three of the movie, sort of point five. He is a, what seems to be successful drug dealer in Atlanta. Yeah. Who... Seems like he's doing pretty well. Is very attractive. Beefy. I mean, he's Trevante Rhodes. Yes. He is a beefy guy who his mom calls him frequently. He sort of ignores the calls until he doesn't. And he goes to visit her and we learn that she is doing successfully in a drug treatment center. Yeah. I have one note on Trevante Rhodes, who, as you say, is extremely hot. For reasons I cannot explain, his facial hair reminded me of Rob McElhaney's. It is a little too sculpted. And what I have to know, Mark, is do you know what Welcome to Wrexham is? No. (laughs) Welcome to Wrexham is the thing Rob McElhaney is currently starring in. It is a documentary series. Oh, is this about him buying that Welsh football club? In which Rob McElhaney and... Ryan Reynolds together by a football club. And the documentary series is about them trying to turn it into a winning team. I did know that they had bought the club. I did not know there was a documentary series about it. It is on Hulu. I have not seen any of it, but I find its existence hilarious. It's a patently absurd idea. Really, it feels like an idea only Ryan Reynolds could come up with. Um, <laughs> back to Moonlight. He back to Moonlight. is reconnecting with his mom. They have a really touching scene where she apologizes for how she treated him when he was younger is like i didn't love you when you needed it most but i love you now he tears up he is at this point very unemotional clearly keeping a wall between him and anyone so this one tear alone feels like a massive moment in his life yes but his physical appearance is also somewhat patterned off of mahershala ali's his grills are similar to the ones Mahershala wore. He has a similar, like, earring and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is very true. And, of course, what brought him down again to Miami is not going to see his mom. It's because he got this call from Kevin. Oh, yeah, the call is before he sees his mom. Yeah, that's what actually brings him to Miami. And it includes the deranged question, you do remember me, right? 
again, I don't think processing is Kevin's strong suit. Yeah. He eventually goes to the diner where Kevin works, and, like, it does seem like Kevin is doing pretty well. He's got a kid who he seems to like a lot. He's got a job that he finds really fulfilling. He went to jail, but got a job after that he seems committed to, and he seems happy. Yes. His life has also had a lot of struggles, but he is fulfilled in a way that Chiron Black uh, does not seem to be quite as much. It feels more like Black has walled himself off, Mm -hmm. whereas Kevin is living a more full life. But it's very important to note, Black is the nickname for Chiron that Kevin came up with. That's right. So at the diner, they reconnect. Kevin cooks him a meal, tells him the reason he called is because a stranger played a song, or a man played a song, a love song about a stranger on the jukebox that reminded him of Chiron. So clearly, (laughs) he did mean something to Kevin. It was not just a casual thing for him, too, at least to some degree. And that's why he calls. They talk. Kevin doesn't have a car, so Chiron offers to drive him to his apartment. So Chiron. (laughs) What's your... What you looking at me like that for? Come on, man. Come on. You just drove down here. Yeah. Like you was just, you was just on one. And you hit the highway. Yeah. Where you gonna stay tonight, man? Shout out to car-free people. Bikes and buses. He, like, is showing off his car and his grills, and he's clearly trying to put up a display to Kevin that he is better off because he has more money, almost. Yeah, it's, it's trying to win their situation. While he, to us, does seem to be losing because Kevin is just so much happier. When they get to Kevin's apartment and he's just like, oh, can I offer you some green tea? <laughs> it was just like... And, and not just that, but the idea is the art that his kid did all over the wall. Right. Like, you learn a lot about Kevin the moment they walk into the apartment. And he does seem happy. Yeah. And he's Andre Holland, so he looks great. And so they, you know, talk, have a moment, and, you know, they reconnect the walls come down. Andre Holland, Kevin finally gets through to him, and the movie ends with just a beautiful shot of Black with his head on Kevin's shoulder. And it's like the first time you see him with any physical contact with a person since the beach. Oh, and he also admits that he's never been with anyone since the beach either. And the movie ends, and the Bretel score hits, and it's just an exhalation. Ugh. What a good movie. What a good movie. All right, Will. This feels stupid. (laughs) I know. Do you find the romance believable? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, what are we talking about here? Of course. Like, is it a 10? I think it's a 10 for me. Sure, yeah. There's a a reason we do the Best Picture nominees in 10-minute runs. Yeah. Um, do you think any of these people are dateable? Um, for me, I think, uh, like... Final stage, Kevin, possibly. That's, yeah. That's, I think, pretty much the only answer the movie is really putting forward as well. But I think post-prison settled Kevin could be dateable. Yeah. And he's going to make you good food. Yeah. It did look tasty. As far as, like, Kevin and and Black staying together, like, I don't really think that's what this is. I don't, yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, they would. But it's not a perfect world, and I don't even know if they're going to, like, officially date or anything. I don't think so. I don't think so. I hope so. But, yeah, again, like, that's not... That's, we're like, this is stupid. What are we doing here? Yeah. Um, if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? And why is it Teresa? Oh, it's obviously Teresa. Um, number one, she's Janelle Monet. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> number two, she's really nice and kind of helps people without really much of a question yeah she really just jumps in and helps yeah other option a hot teacher yeah but mostly Teresa. <laughs> yeah it's obviously Teresa. should this movie be made into a musical no like hard no 
Absolutely not. Just, I'd be interested in seeing the play staged. It's never been professionally produced. That I agree with. A musical? No. Absolutely not. Um. All right. <laughs> that's Moonlight. All right. That's it for Moonlight. This was a listener suggestion from our listener, Manny. Shout out to Manny for sending us an email at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Thank you for asking us to do this. We probably wouldn't have otherwise, and then Mark would never have seen this. Yeah, there is a good chance I would never have watched it without the show because I was too embarrassed for not having watched it. Again, there's no logic there, but sometimes a diseased mind comes up with interesting logic. So Manny, Mark owes you a big thank you. (laughs) Uh, Next week, we'll be covering a movie called Three Days of the Condor, which I think Will has explained to me at least twice, and I still know nothing about. Mark doesn't know, but this is the beginning of our Christmas coverage this year, because I finally conceded that we perhaps should not do a string of made-for-TV romances that slowly drive Mark insane. So this year, our theme for the month of December is movies that technically take place around Christmas. Is this coming out at Thanksgiving? Oh my god. Yes, Moonlight comes out the week of Thanksgiving. We're recording a little early. Um, Three Days of the Condor is the classic Robert Redford political thriller and according to a list I read, it takes place at Christmas. I've never seen it. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify to help other people find the show. Just realize I said you can follow the show at Facebook and Twitter at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. That is not how Facebook and Twitter work. It is just at love the love pot. <laughs> They'll figure it out. Last question, Mark. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from Moonlight? I mean, um, my advice is don't punch people you're attracted to in the face. But also, don't punch anyone in the face. Yeah, I feel like all of the rules I gave for school, also dating advice. Yeah, <laughs> Don't have sex at school is good dating advice as well. All right, well, there you go. Until next time, until Christmas, I am a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye.